take your seats. Hello, um, if, you, if we haven't met, my name is Callum. I get to serve as one of the pastors in training here. And as Liam mentioned, we're going to be focusing on a passage called the Transfiguration. We'll get into what that means in a bit. Um, but do grab your Bibles again. We're going to read the passage from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Uh, this is on page uh, 1039 in the Red Church Bibles. A steward will be happy to bring you one. If you want, do just stick up your hand and a steward will come down the aisles. Luke chapter 9. Starting at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is Good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is God's word. On my commute uh, into the church building when I'm coming into town during the week, I sometimes get the bus. Now, we're, we're traveling, Claire and I are normally traveling in from the south side of Edinburgh, from Gilmerton, up on the hill. Uh, and on the top deck of the bus, this isn't my photo, by the way, I'm not taking any claim for that, you get a great view over the city looking north. On the right, you have the mighty Arthur's Seat and the crags next to them, breaking out from the urban landscape. A mighty natural formation that pre-exists this city settlement that has grown to develop around it. To the left, you can just about make out the tips of the three Queensferry crossings going over the fourth. Three incredible feats of engineering, one from each of the last three centuries over to the Fife coastline. And of course, in the middle you get the mighty Edinburgh Castle, a mighty fortress on top of a massive volcanic plug, centuries old, surrounded by its various markings of the Edinburgh skyline, the National Museum, the spires of various city cathedrals. This is a, a site that I pass most days, but I rarely acknowledge it. 
It's become a normal part of my day. And therefore, it has become dull to me. That's mad, isn't it? Look at that picture. This is our city that we get to live in. It is a privilege to be here and what we are surrounded by. I sometimes, I don't know if you, about you, for a, a new student coming to town or for a tourist coming even just for a month, I feel a sense of shame to them telling me about their travels over just a few weeks, that they might have seen more of Edinburgh and of Scotland than I have in my whole life. It took me 23 years to step foot in Edinburgh Castle, a local here, less than 10 miles away. Something so familiar, and yet it has lost its awe in my eyes. I mention this as this, this story in Luke's gospel tonight, this transfiguration of Jesus might be very familiar to some of us. The various miracles, but particularly this episode, can be familiar in our minds. And this familiarity runs the risk of turning the spectacular dull. Our brains are incredibly uh, clever organs, they can, they can take pre-existing information that you know that you're processing, things that you have previously learned, and apply shortcuts and make assumptions to focus its energy on absorbing new information. Your brain is doing this all the time. There's some great advantages to this, but there's also the risk that we assume information, gloss over details to tell ourselves that there's nothing that we need to be reminded of. But God's words that we read from tonight is living and active, and this account is far from ordinary. And its purpose is to bring constant change and transformation in our lives. Not that the interpretation changes. I'm not gonna be sharing anything new, I hope. A new spin on this account but that we might change more and more into his likeness, the likeness of Jesus. That we might be captivated afresh by it. That we would cherish it as the gift that it is from God to us. Let me just pray as we get into this tonight. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, we want to know and love Christ more tonight. 
Thank you for your inspired word that you have given us in order to do just that. Would you, as it were, transfigure this word before our eyes tonight? Not that it is not already glorious or inspired, but that we would see it, behold it, as it really is. That this is not a mere human work on a page, but your words revealing your glory. We can only see this with eyes of faith. Grant us that faith, Lord, by the power of your spirit at work within us. May we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. We pick up the story here uh, as we approach a crucial junction in Luke's carefully ordered account of his gospel. And we see a similar turn in the gospels of Matthew and Mark. We know that this is important. Our passage starts with Luke saying, after eight days, Jesus said, this, said these things, which is in reference to the passage that Andy walked us through two weeks ago, verses 18 to 27. It gets to the heart of Jesus' identity and purpose. Peter confesses in verse 20, you, Jesus, are God's Messiah, God's anointed promised king. And then the end of this episode, verse 51, which we'll get to later this month, at the time approach for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We have a gear change coming. We followed a lot of Jesus' teaching and work in the surrounding area of Galilee in the north, but soon he is heading south to Jerusalem for what awaits him there. But before we get there, Jesus has the teaching demonstration to end all teaching demonstrations. This puts Hollywood to shame and is reserved only for three people. We're going to look at our passage tonight under three headings. Behold our glorious God, listen to him, and finally we'll be thinking about some applications. So first of all, from verse 28 to 31, behold our glorious God. Jesus picks out three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go up a mountain to pray. Now, we've, we've seen Jesus doing this thing, selecting a group, Peter, James, and John, before. He did it back in chapter 8 when Jesus rose Jairus' daughter back from the grave, arguably his greatest miracle to date. That was only to be witnessed by Jairus' parents, or Jairus and his wife, I should say, and his three closest disciples. And tonight, there is another incredible sight in store for them. He is the God of splendor, verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning or dazzling white as the ESV puts it. Jesus doesn't have a, a, a little sort of glow here. It's an overwhelming flash which does not fade. I don't know if you ever do this in a, in a thunderstorm or a lightning storm. Stare up at the sky, waiting to, to see the next crack. Knowing that you don't want to blink because you don't want to miss it. Well, 
apparently the average lightning bolt contains or requires about 300 million volts, about 30,000 amps. Think about that next time you're, you're changing a, a three amp fuse at your plug at home. By my calcs, that's about nine trillion watts of power. Nine trillion. I can't even get my head around that. And that is for a, a, a split second flash that might light up the sky. This is for a lightning bolt that is probably about two or three centimeters in width. Keep that in mind. Here is Jesus, a man radiating a brighter light, not fading, not miles away, but immediately close, inescapable, overwhelming for our minds in a world of shadow. This is not a whiter than white kind of washing up powder advert glow. This is infinite power and glory before them. Jesus here, Luke is using the, the language described of God the Father, described in Daniel chapter 7 of the ancient of days, God the Father on his heavenly throne, clothed in white, whiter than snow. This is Jesus. Now, this is not, don't get the wrong idea of what Jesus is doing here. He is not switching off his man mode and turning on his God mode. Jesus doesn't work like that, and we are in deep trouble if we start thinking of Jesus in these terms. No, he fully here on this mountaintop is fully God, fully man. How are we to understand this? Well, Peter explains later in one of his letters, one of his last letters, he describes what happens here. Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus in his true, unveiled, glorified human state. What a sight. He's the God of the mountain. Now, we're not entirely sure which mountain this takes place on, but I think the way Luke is writing this is wanting us to think about another mountaintop experience. And if you've been around with us recently in our morning series in Exodus, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Just this morning, we read from Exodus 24 of a mountaintop, as we'll see later in our passage, of a cloud descending. There is thunder, lightning, fire, light. This is a Mount Sinai episode. A great story of of an all-powerful, terrifyingly good God making a way to dwell with a sinful people. That's what happened in Exodus. Giving those people his word, his law, amid thunder and lightning. Mount Sinai actually features again in, in 1 Kings chapter 19 with Elijah, where he goes to Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai where he encounters the presence of the living God. The use of mountains, and in particular this mountain in the Bible, in the scriptures, was to help the Jews, like these disciples, understand visibly this transcendent greatness 
of the God that they were coming into contact with. It's like a, a lightning rod, if I'll continue using the lightning analogy, on top of a tall building where heaven and earth come into contact. Now here is Jesus revealing his divine eternal glory on a mountain in his created body. And this idea of uh, God of the mountain is linked to a third category. Jesus is the God of the scriptures. Have a look at verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Now for these Jews standing on this mountaintop with Jesus, seeing these two men, this is a pinch yourself kind of moment if it wasn't already. These are the two Old Testament celebrities, Moses and Elijah, the two heavyweights. And they're appearing in splendor as well with him. Now, how, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? I've got no idea. Your guess is as good as mine. Maybe Elijah was sporting one of his trademark hairy jackets, or Moses was carrying a stone tablet on his, on his shoulder like a retro boombox. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but it was then. Two representatives of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures talking with Jesus. And what were they talking about? Verse 31, they spoke about his departure. That word might have a footnote, exodus. Which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They are talking about Jesus' exodus, a better exodus. The true rescue plan that was first, um, the first one under Moses that that was pointing to. The promised glorified king that the prophet spoke of. Jesus himself would show that he was the fulfillment of everything written in the Old Testament scriptures. At the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 27, after he is resurrected from the dead, Jesus speaks with his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it's all about Jesus. It is impossible for me to adequately describe to you the sight before these three disciples. This man who they had traveled with, who they had eaten with. They knew his parents. They knew his hometown of about 200 people. And he is transfigured before their very eyes. Revealing nothing less than the full weight of his deserved glory as God the Son. And they're not immediately destroyed. How would you react if you were there? We're going to see a very human response in our second point in our remaining verses. Listen to him from verse 32 to 36. Now, Peter, standing there, probably a bit stunned to say the least, comes to his senses as, as much as he is physically and mentally able to, in the sight of this, to conjure up some words to probably just spill out of his mouth. Verse 33, Master, it is, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, three tents, 
One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And in case there was any doubt, Luke helpfully tells us that Peter doesn't have the foggiest idea what he's talking about. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about because he doesn't know what he's seeing. He can't. His creaturely mind, creaturely faculties are witnessing a glimpse of the creator. And it is beyond him as it would be for us, for you and me. There are some sort of desire that he has to to sort of preserve this glory. He sees that Moses and Elijah are going on their merry way. Let's give you all a tent. This must be why we're here. This is a good thing for us to do. Do you see how ridiculous this idea is? A tent that Peter is going to whip together, probably with, well, he's not brought his tent up with him, to contain this glory? Placing Jesus on par with these other two next to him? Now, sure, Moses and Elijah are appearing in glorious splendor, but they are merely reflecting this glory. There is only one source. And there's no doubting who, that's, who that is. Now, while Peter is still verbally processing this idea with his tongue probably hanging out of his mouth, he gets interrupted in the most incredible way. This will leave him in silence. We've had Peter's account. Now we're going to see the Father's account. A cloud covers them, verse 34, and comes with a voice. Just like at Mount Sinai, this is the presence of the veiled God the Father. And just like at Jesus' baptism, he declares, This is my Son, whom I have chosen, my beloved. Now, up to this point in Luke's gospel, this must surely be the greatest declaration of Jesus' identity. We had Peter declaring him as the Messiah, but this surely trumps it. From the almighty voice of God the Father himself. But there is something new here that's different from the baptism episodes. The end of verse 35. Listen to him. Listen to him. Not look at him in all his splendor. That would seem to make the most sense, but listen to him. And it is just him. Moses and Elijah have gone. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God, the fulfillment of everything that was spoken about of him. He is not to be held on equal standing with the prophets. Jesus is above and beyond. God the Son, the prophet, capital P, who they are to listen to. And what has this glorious son of God just said to them to listen to? What's he talking about? Well, we need to go back to verses 21 to 27. If you just flip back over the page. As I said, Andy took us through this last time. The son of man must suffer, must be rejected, killed before rising again three days later. This God-man of incomprehensible glory must first suffer. And not just a a, a stub-your-toe kind of suffering, which would be mind-blowing 
for the God of the universe. But a rejection by all of a lesser authority. This God clothed in splendor would be stripped naked and beaten. This God of the mountain would go to Jerusalem but would be led out of his royal city without glory to another mount carrying a cross. A Roman death penalty reserved for only non-Romans. It wasn't honorable enough for them. That's how humiliating it was. Are you listening, Peter, James, and John? Do you you hear what I am saying? This king of glory beyond your imagination must suffer to the depths beyond your imagination. Does this offend you, Peter, James, and John? Are you ashamed of me and my words? Now, Jesus' words in in verse 27 have come true. These three standing here have seen the kingdom of God. Mark, in his account, adds the words, uh, the kingdom come with power. They have seen with their eyes the kingdom of God come with power on this Mount of Transfiguration. A foretaste of Christ's return in resurrected glory, flanked by his glorious angels. Those words have proved true, but what about these words? That he will first deny himself, deny himself the glory that he deserves, that he already has, to submit himself to death for the sake of those who are trying to rob him of his glory. That all who who wish to save their life must deny themselves. That all of Christ's followers will follow this path of humiliating suffering before that eternal glory. If these words are too offensive for you and your life, if you will not listen and you will not accept them, then the Son of Man will not accept you. Peter, James, and John leave the mountain silently, not fully understanding what they have seen and heard. And indeed they wouldn't until after Jesus' resurrection. Luke 24, 26 says this, the resurrected Jesus speaking this time, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That was the path. But these three eyewitnesses would indeed listen as their lives would go on to prove after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus. Present sufferings before eternal glory. Peter would be put to death after being put in prison in Rome some 30 years later. His final letter to Peter, making it clear that he understood this transfiguration event as a foretaste of that future glory, and it is certain. As certain as he saw it with his eyes, it is certain that he is coming again. James would be persecuted and killed by King Herod. We can read about that in Acts Acts 12. John 
would declare at the start of his gospel account, we have seen his glory. But he would also be exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith. There he saw a vision, as Liam read out to us earlier from Revelation chapter 1, of the resurrected Lord Jesus, again clothed in all of his glory, These men had been captured by a sight of an eternal kingdom, following their resurrected Savior on the same path of suffering by faith, preaching as they went, Christ crucified. Now, what are we to make of this? As we come towards the end, The implications for us are in some ways similar to the disciples. First of all, we are to behold our God. His coming is certain. You might be sitting here thinking, well, that was all right for those three. But for me, I I would need a visible sign like this from Jesus. Why can't he appear for me? If only he did that, if only Jesus revealed himself in that way for me, then I would believe. But it does not and indeed has never worked like that. Not even for the disciples. They couldn't make sense of what they had seen. They required faith given to them to understand the significance of that event. Sight alone was not enough for Peter, James, and John. So how do we see him today? We don't have Jesus walking around with us, whether in a glorified state or not. Well, Peter tells us. Have a look at, uh, flip in your Bibles to 2 Peter. It's on uh, page 1222 in the church Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here in this letter, which is coming just before his death, his certain death, he is writing to Christians to remind them of the future glory that awaits. And he justifies himself and his testimony. uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Great, good for you, Peter. What about us? Verse 19. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. That prophetic message is the scriptures. As Peter would explain in his letter, Old Testament and New Testament. After defending his eyewitness testimony, he points to what he calls a completely reliable source. It's scripture. 
It's like a lamp revealing God's glory to us. And one day that lamp will be superseded by a greater light, Christ himself, when we see him face to face in all of his splendor. We read scripture, we apply faith to scripture, and we see the glory of Christ. If you are here tonight and you do not know, if you know that you don't have a right standing before God, before this coming king, you can respond in faith right now. You can talk to God by a prayer, admitting your own attempts to try and steal God's glory from himself and asking Jesus to save you. You can do that right now. Please speak with a a friend or someone who you came with if that is true for you. I'll be at the door afterwards as well if you want to talk. This is a glorious God and he requires a response from us. But secondly, knowing this certain glory that is coming, we're to follow his path, knowing that suffering is temporary. Knowing that Christ is coming back to gather his people gives us as his followers comfort in our struggle today. It is not a glorious struggle. It doesn't look like it. We have a picture of our king, the glory that he foregoes in order to live a life of suffering for the sake of his gospel. Peter, James, and John follow that same path. We do the same. Knowing the humiliating sufferings you endure for the sake of Christ are not in vain. They are not forever. What is forever is glory, if only veiled from us at this present time. Christ reminds his followers of this as he turns towards the road leading up to Jerusalem. And he reminds you by his word tonight, as you walk in weakness for him this current week. And finally, we are to listen to him and be transformed as we take hold of his words, as we behold the glory of our maker, as we yearn for his coming, as we take to heart the beauty of the character of Christ and his glory and of his actions of utter humility in acting, achieving our salvation, we fall more and more in love with Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we who are with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from God, who is the Spirit. A remarkable thing takes place when we consider Christ more and more. We become more and more like him. The spirit at work within us as we desire to know Christ by the revelation of his living words will transform us from one degree of glory to the next into his likeness. Our minds will be renewed in order to grasp more of this outstanding glory. Our walk will be strengthened as we look to follow his path of suffering. 
Now, we will never be perfect in this life, but after we die or Christ returns, we will be clothed in the splendor like Moses and Elijah. Our transformed faculties to fully comprehend the glory of our God, who we will see face to face and forever. Do not let the glory of God's words be snatched away by the devil tonight. Do not let it be snatched from your heart as you wake tomorrow and go about your day. Listen to him and become more like him as we see the day of glory approach us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of glory, but not just a God of glory, of all glory. And we can't even begin to scratch the surface at what that means, what that looks like. But we adore you for revealing yourself to us in this way. Thank you for your word, where we can come to know Christ, his glory, but first his suffering for us, his freely, his free choice to do so, that we might become like him. Help us to cherish Christ. Help us to walk our path of suffering, knowing that glory awaits. Strengthen us, my brothers and sisters here in their walk, knowing that the day of Christ and his glory is coming.